Welcome to Tank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. Charles Yeo is a geneticist with a special interest in how our genetic makeup influences obesity and the brain control of food intake. He was born in Singapore and grew up in San Francisco and studied at the University of California, Berkeley. He obtained his PhD from the University of Cambridge and assisted with uncovering key pathways in how brain controls food intake. He lives in Cambridge with his family and is involved in research pertaining to how the neural pathways are related to food intake and how this differs between individuals. He's a principal research associate at the MRC Metabolic Diseases Unit and a graduate tutor at Wolfson College, Cambridge. He has numerous publications and has released a book called Gene Eating, The Story of Human Appetite. His second book will be called Why Calories Don't Count and will hopefully come out in May 2021. You may also recognise Giles from his appearances on the BBC as a science presenter and we were delighted to have him speak at our St Andrews Nutritank branch in Scotland. It's an absolute pleasure to have him on the show today. Hello everyone, we're lucky to have Giles here today. As you know, I've done a big intro already, but I'd like to just start off by Giles telling us a little bit about himself and what he gets up to on a regular basis with his work. So welcome Giles. Well, welcome, welcome, thank you very much for having me. (laughs) It's our absolute pleasure. We were so happy to have you at our St Andrews branch and I actually went to a talk you did three years ago when I was in first year uh, of medical school or something like that and so I've seen you speak myself before. Where where was that just out of curiosity? So um, it was in I want to say near Shoreditch and I can't even, it was Clean Eating the Dirty Truth or something like that. No, that was the documentary you did. Um, what was the name of the talk? I don't remember. It was small. It was in, I remember the building. It was near Shoreditch, near Old Street. Um, and... Ah, yes, I remember. This was the one with the, um, with those two dietitians. Yes, the Rooted Project. The Rooted Project. Okay. Rooted project. Yes, that's where I've heard you speak. Exactly. And I was writing the book at the time, actually, because that, that um, uh, my, the, the, the gene eating book, sorry, whether or not you want to talk about that yet, but, but it was just, that was, the, that was the time, exactly at the time, doing that clean eating um, program was what actually crystallized the ideas for what I wanted to do for the, um, for, 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 for the book. Yeah, I remember this now, The Rooted Project. Yeah, a while back. Well, we, can, we don't have to go in any order. Far away. Tell us about your inspiration at the time and everything that was out in society and the, the messages you wanted to put in your book. I mean, the messages... So here's the interesting... Here's the thing. I mean, I am a geneticist and I, by trade, by, by training, that's what, I, that's what I did my undergrad, I did my PhD in. Um, and then I found myself in the obesity field. I, I started working with the severe... 
with severe obesity, looking at obesity, severe obesity in kids, um, and then now uh, uh, into the less severe spectrum, or at least the full the full spectrum. Um, in other words, common body weight uh, variation. Okay, so common variation in, in in body weight, and we now know, for example, that the by studying the genetics of body weight, we are by definition studying the genetics of how our brain controls food intake. So in very many ways, I'm an accidental neuroscientist, and I study variations in body weight in the current food environment we live in. And that's my day job. Okay? Um, but I also understand we have this increasing obesity problem, obviously, um, that in order to actually fix the obesity problem, we not only need to understand the biology, individual variation, blah, 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 because these will give us interesting ideas about new biology, potential therapeutics, um, and all of these useful things that we're going to need to actually tackle. But the reality is, without fixing the food environment we actually live in, I don't think we'll permanently fix the problem. Because I think the food environment is being permissive for, for obesity to occur. And the quickest way to actually fix the obesity problem is if we can somehow fix the food environment. And so from my non-day job, from my head, uh, uh, you know, in doing things like broadcasting and eventually writing, this is the bit I wanted to explore. And, and I had a book rattling around my head for a while, um, you know, about this, about that, about pseudoscience. Just, but it was a, a bit of a gamish. It was a bit about, you know, just, just everything that was there. And then I did that Horizon program about clean eating. The, the dirty truth and um and that whole experience then crystallized what i what i really wanted to write about and it was about i mean clean eating just happens to be some of the areas I, I i looked at but about why people buy into um pseudoscience and why people are so willing to accept um uh, uh, evangelical thoughts about food in particular you know what why is why are people so religious about about diets and about food and that was what really really interested me and what i ended up writing about and so tell our listeners when was this book released and its name oh sorry <laughs> so the, the, the book is called gene eating which is a play on clean eating um it was originally published under the title gene eating uh the science of obesity and the truth about diets um in 19 uh sorry 19 in 2018 december 2018 is when it came out um but then the publishers last year uh decided that oh it's too sciencey okay i mean i have no control i have to say over over how they title it and so now it's called gene eating the story of human appetite but it's exactly the same it's exactly the same book just with with a different different tagline cool different branding and so you actually spoke about this book to our medical student branch, um, our Nutrient branch in St. Andrews. And so in your book, you managed to dispel, to dispel many of the myths and the pseudoscience surrounding diets. So I'm going to ask you quite a big question now. Of all of these myths, which do you think is the most ingrained in society and difficult for people to overcome? What is the... Ooh. With, I think they're different myths. I think they're different myths. I think there's a myth from a body from a body uh, size perspective, and the myth is that body weight is a choice. So that's the first that's the first myth. And you might think, of course, it's a choice. I'm choosing to stick the pizza in my mouth. Um, so from that perspective, it's a myth because 
while yes, each meal is a binary choice in very many ways, am I eating the pizza or am I not eating the pizza? You have to remember that um, we do not gain weight or lose weight, sadly, for some people, overnight. Our body weight is the uh, function of thousands of different food decisions that have taken taken place over the past few years. Okay, now we now understand a little bit about the genetics of of, um, of obesity, about body weight, and we understand that it influences your feeding behavior, your food choices. Okay, and so put simply, some people feel slightly more hungry than others, or driven towards, or, or drawn to food. And so find it more difficult to say no. Just a few percentage points. So over thousands of different decisions, those are thousands of different, uh, thousands of additional calories or thousands less calories that you actually have. And so people are skinny, average size, or heavy. So first myth, body weight has a huge biological impact to it, and it's not a choice, okay? Or certainly not a choice that the way that people think it is. Myth number one, okay? Myth number two well, then how do I lose weight, okay? Myth number two is that uh, there is a one-size-fits-all magical diet, which there just is not, okay? Um, there are going to be ways of losing weight, and the way to lose weight, okay, is you're going to have to get into caloric deficit. You have to eat less than you burn to lose weight. There is no if, there's no ands, there are no buts about that, okay? So, because it's physics. But... How you achieve that caloric deficit is going to be entirely different between different people. And so that's myth number two. And myth number three, okay, that I'll, that, that, that's three myths. I'm sorry, I know I was only given one myth. Uh, uh, the myth, myth number three, people say that 95% of diets don't work. Not technically true, actually. 95% of diets we can't stick to. Because any diet that puts us in caloric deficit and that we can stick to it's a diet that works. The problem is, when you come off the diet, the weight comes back on. And so, the only way we're going to lose weight is if we eat less and burn more, and if we stick to it to keep the weight off. Wow. Well, I appreciate that you gave us three because that was very informative. <laughs> and really important, I think, to dispel. Really important. There's so many mixed messages that come out of social media and all different kind of platforms. So it's really good to hear from a geneticist those three things. So could you tell our listeners just exactly what a geneticist actually does? Um, a geneticist is... It's, I mean, I, there are many different kinds of geneticists. Okay, so geneticists study clearly genes. But you can study the genes of anything because all DNA is exactly is exactly the same. It's just got different sequences in it. I actually did my PhD in the genetics of Japanese pufferfish. <laughs> would, you, would you believe? I know, um, but 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 I realized that the genetics of Japanese pufferfish during my PhD was not going to pay my mortgage, and so I ended up going into something more fundable, which was which was actually actually obesity. Um, people study genetics for any number of different different reasons. Um, the first, you can study genetics from a purely nerdy perspective, and we are all by definition pure nerds, I guess, um, studying about the fundamentals of, of genes and genetics and structure. Um, I, however, like many other people, use genetics as a tool and um, in order to study different traits. The trait that I choose to study just happens to be body weight. Mm -hmm. So my particular interest is in trying to understand why we are different sizes in this particular environment. So that, that so, so from my perspective, that involves looking at people who are of different sizes 
and looking at their genes and asking, well, what could differ between between these different people in this environment? And then, so that's A. In very many ways, that is the, I don't want to say it's the easy part, um, um, but it is the easier part because that's large, high throughput, a lot, a lot of it is actually automated. Then you then have to say that, okay, well, here are some variations that happen to be associated with weight gain or weight loss. How do we then pick, how do we get the gems, you know, from the, you know, sift out the gold nuggets from, from this whole pile of sand um, to actually find the genes that actually play key and critical roles in, in how this body weight is, is uh, controlled. And then you then need to then form a hypothesis. Gene X is important. We now need to disrupt gene X in a model organism or model system and ask, does it or does it not influence some of the traits that I'm interested in? So that's what, in effect, we do. I mean, I don't do a lot of the wet work anymore. I've got a team that work that work for me, but that pretty much is what is what geneticists, certainly geneticists that study body weight regulation do, but geneticists that study any kind of trait would do pretty much the same thing. Sure. And could you tell us in the most simple of ways, because I know you're very wise, but what are some of these body regulatory genes and the variations that you've picked up upon? So what is really, it was a surprise to us, actually. I'm going to say we, it, it, it was a surprise. Like I said, we started off by doing what we call a candidate gene approach, which meant that um, we had severe obese kids and then we were asking, well, what genes might we think you know, could influence why they were quite as, as, as fat as they were. And then we kind of worked our way um, through, through, through the biology of the different genes. And the biology led us to the brain. Okay? And now we know that the vast majority of single gene defects that cause severe, severe obesity, so these are ones that cause obesity, not associated with obesity, um, all are in, in genes that influence pathways within the brain. A. B. In the big genetics, these genome-wide association studies that, that, that have been done in which we take a, people take a hypothesis-free approach. So in other words, they take hundreds of thousands, sometimes even millions of people, and look at millions of different genetic variations and ask what, which of these genetic variations influence body weight. Um, the genes that appear are all genes that actually sit within the brain, okay, and overlap with pathways that control food intake that we see in severe obesity. So, I guess put very, very simply, um, we now understand that the genetics of body weight has to do with the genetics of feeding behavior. Now, we, from, there are probably over 300 genes that we now know are linked to body weight and where we know their function are linked to feeding behavior. So what, what are some of these genes? Well, your brain needs to know two pieces of information um, in order to influence your food intake. The first is it needs to know how much fat you have. Why is that important? It's important because how much fat you have is how long you would last in the wild without any food. If your food stopped today, how long would you actually live, live for? Okay. Not a problem today, but a problem in the past where we never had enough food. The second piece of information, so these are long-term signals. The second piece of information your brain needs to know is what you have just eaten and what you are currently eating. So these are your short-term signals. And these signals are gonna come from your gastrointestinal tract, your gut, okay? Every time you eat, and, and the food goes through your food to poop shoot, um, you, you, it gives off hormones. Now, the brain senses hormones coming from fat, which lets you know how much fat you have, and hormones coming from your gut integrates these signals. So your long-term and short-term energy, long energy stores integrates these signals, 
and then influences your next interaction with the fridge, a menu, or the supermarket. Okay? Some of these genes, some of these 300 genes, influence the sensitivity of your brain to these signals. So what do I mean by that? Imagine if, um, so myself, let's take myself as an example. I probably carry around 20 kilograms of fat on me. Sounds like a lot, but it's actually typical of a, uh, I wish I could be fitter middle-aged male. Okay, so <laughs> 20 kilos of fat. Um, but imagine if my brain was less sensitive to these signals and only senses 18 kilos of fat rather than 20. The brain is going to go, hey, pardon me, 18, pardon me, and tries to get me to eat more to get me to 20 kilos. But I'm already at 20 kilos of fat. And so I get larger. I've gained more fat. Equally, if, you're, if say you had, I don't know, 1,000 calories for lunch or for dinner, but your brain was less sensitive to these signals and only sensed 800 or 900 calories, well, then your brain will drive you to eat more than you need, which is why you, me, your mom, your dad, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, could be sat across the table from you eating exactly the same meal, and yet one of us could feel full after a meal, whereas someone else could actually end up still feeling hungry or not as full. So the, those are two examples of what some of these genes actually, um, the, the roles of some of these genes and what they do. Wow. So you've described the variability between individuals and their body weight regulation. So how do you feel that population level public health interventions can impact this? Because it's obviously affecting the population as a whole rather than looking at the individual. So how do you think we can strike up a balance between individual obesity interventions versus public health ones? Mm, and, and I think that, I don't think there are any easy answers. And I, and I think that is the perennial tension because public health information relies on messages that can actually go out so that many people can follow it easily, which is indirect tension and competition to one's individual biology. Um, I don't think there's any easy answers, and I think we're going to have to find a way of actually of actually going about it. But in order to find the answer, or at least find a workable solution through it, we need to accept that body weight is not a choice. Because at the moment, everyone, most of our policymakers, you can just listen to our health secretary or whoever's speaking saying, personal responsibility, personal responsibility. Okay, now personal responsibility implies that the... the the blame lies entirely on the person suffering from the problem. Now, we do all have some personal responsibility. Please, I'm not advocating, you, you know, it's my child, and it's my responsibility to buy them the right type of food. It's my body, and I need to know that. But if for some people it's going to be more difficult than others, okay, we have to understand that. And that piece of information has to be put into what are the solutions that, 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 we, actually, that we actually have. So I think there probably are some easy gains that would help a lot of people, although not everybody. And I think that's what we're going to have to go for. Just, just as, as a classic example, from a policy perspective, when I go to WH Smith to buy a pencil <laughs> or, or whatever it is, why, why do I have to be assaulted um, by an obstacle course of chocolate? Hey, just, just give me that example. I am not a... A big uh, nanny state person, I just want to point out, if I want a chocolate bar, I feel like I should choose to have a chocolate bar. But by all means, walk to the chocolate bar aisle, make the executive decision to buy a chocolate bar, and buy the chocolate bar. I've got no problem with, 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 with this. 
But I think if you're going to do something else entirely, in other words, you are not there to make it, you, your executive decision was to buy a pencil. Mm-hmm. But yet, because of some people's susceptibility, as you buy a pencil, suddenly you pick up a chocolate bar. The same thing is when you go get petrol at the petrol station or when you go buy paracetamol from Boots. You know, why should you be assaulted by chocolate? So I, I or sweets or whatever candies are available there. So I think that's an easy game, for example, where you're not trying to stop anyone selling chocolate bars. You're just trying to say that, well, look, Mr. Drugstore owner, Mr. Pharmacy, um, you know, by all means have a chocolate bar aisle, but don't put it by the... Um, don't put it by the tills. So that's a classic example in which it's not going to influence everybody because I think the people who are very susceptible will still go and look and seek out the chocolate. Okay, then we'll have to have a different solution for that. But that is an easy gain in which we could then, um, you know, fix really quite a lot of uh, problems with sure. people being susceptible. No, you're absolutely right. And it is just so um, insidious sometimes, food market, food marketing. And Jamie Oliver, I'm not sure if you've seen, is working with an organisation um, who we had on the podcast last week. And they're called Bite Back and they're campaigning to halve childhood obesity by 2030. And they're looking at how insidious marketing around food and fast food can be and can impact you immediately when you get to a place and what your food decision is going to be because it's, you know, it's impressed itself into your subconscious. And it's very similar to what you're saying with the nudging um, infrastructure of how the tills are set up in certain shops to have candies and things at eye levels to prompt you and prime you to buy um, you know, the processed food. So it really is very interesting how uh, factors in the environment can definitely be changed for the better. But I agree with you, it, it is complicated as some still will seek it out at the end of the day. Which is, which is, I think, which is fine because then for those, you then have to have additional measures, separate measures, maybe different targeting measures. And I think that's the way we're going to have to deal with it. A, we're going to have to have adult conversations about a public health problem, okay? And, and, and a public health problem will require a public health solution. You know, no one ever said that you should be disciplined about wearing your seatbelt. They made it a requirement to wear the seatbelt, okay? You don't, you, you don't say, well, I choose to wear the seatbelt or not. So I think we have to deal with it as a public health problem, but with the understanding that food, uh, that we all need food to survive. We don't need a cigarette to live. We just don't, okay? We don't need drugs of abuse to live. We just don't. We need food to survive. So in other words, it's going to be a far more nuanced question when it comes to uh, to food. How do you put forward food that is healthier or not? What does that mean even? And how do we get people to buy some food rather than more food, rather than less food? So and I think I'm, I'm not purporting to have all of the answers by no means, but until we have adult non-hysterical discussions about this, we're not going to be able to find a solution. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And do you work close with any clinicians around this with your research? Oh, absolutely. So, so, the, so I, I'm based at the Institute of Metabolic Science, which is actually at the Adam Brooks Hospital, the Cambridge Biomedical Campus, as they, as they call it. And um, 50% of the people within our institute, so I'm not a clinician, I'm a, I'm a basic scientist, but 50% of the faculty, the PIs um, within our institute are clinicians. So our head of department is a clinician, for example, 
um, the the endocrine and diabetes service are pretty much run out of our of our institute. So so I work with people who who are by and large endocrinologists. Sure. And we had an endocrinologist earlier this morning who works in Bristol, who I know refers patients to your clinic in Cambridge, uh, Professor Julian Hamilton Shield. So listeners, if you haven't already listened to his podcast, have a look. Um, so how do you work closely with the clinicians to um, deliver a multidisciplinary approach to the patient at hand with the problem with their weight? So, um, I mean... Just to be clear, because I'm a geneticist and, I, and because I'm a reductionist geneticist, I'm a molecular geneticist, I study the function and I study the mechanism and I might identify the variations, but I will still rely on the clinician to, for example, recruit the patients or participants, depending on what the situation is, and for the, for the clinician to pass the information back to, to, those, to those participants or patients and obviously to suggest or to manage their, their, their clinical, their clinical um, issues. So, so it, it's, it's got to be a hand-in-glove type, type of scenario, and I've got a lot of clinical colleagues uh, for, that very, for, for that very reason. So I can then um, do the colorless liquids from one little tube to another, which is what I'm very good at doing um, you know, as a skill. I can do that with great precision, um, but then I have to rely on a, um, a, lot, of, a lot of clinicians in, a, in, a, in order to actually deal with the, um, with, with the patients. Sure. And so with your practice and working alongside clinicians, what are your thoughts on the blame culture and stigma surrounding obesity and weight management um, within society today? So how do you and your colleagues help sensitively have a discussion with patients around their weight? And when you're giving talks, I know you're not patient facing, but when you're giving talks and, um, you know, saying things, how do you make it as sensitive and compassionate as possible? I think as long as you show empathy and you show you're actually speaking about a specific problem. So I can have no issues whatsoever speaking to someone um, in front. Uh, so I may not see patients, but because of my broadcasting hat on, I do meet lots of people who suffer from obesity and I speak to them. And I am very, uh, because I'd like to think, I'd like to think that I speak to someone without any blame. I speak to someone about a problem they might be having without any blame, and I can ask them about it, and they will just tell me the answer because they know that I'm just trying to pick, figure out what the issue is, and I'm not trying to blame them. And I think that has got to be the key, that a clinician, Mrs. Smith, walking in the door, type 2, diabe type two diabetic, and severely obese. And the reality is, if Mrs. Smith doesn't lose the weight, she may lose a foot, she may very well die. And so you need to kind of get that message across while understanding and acknowledging that it is difficult for Mrs. Smith for whatever biological or social or cultural reasons that might actually un un underlie that. So I think it's all about empathy and all about removing the blame. So I, I teach um, um, first-year medics. Um, in, in, in Cambridge, which is which is which is where I'm based, and I tr I try and hammer this point home all the time, you know, so that every year 18 year olds come in, all medics, and by the time I'm hoping that by the time they graduate, you know, they'll think, who's that bald Chinese guy talking to us about not blaming people? I'm hoping to to actually inject some more empathy into into the medical profession when it actually comes to dealing with um with people suffering from obesity. I think we need to inject clones of you into other medical schools to teach medical <laughs> students this. I'm, I'm very passionate about this topic and I think it's brilliant that 
Cambridge um, are showing initiative to have this type of teaching with medical students and it just needs to be more standardised across medical schools because as you know or maybe you don't know but every curriculum varies from medical school to medical school in the country and so NutriTank have been campaigning for the last three years to promote greater nutrition education within training so that uh, medical students and junior doctors all feel confident and competent to advise patients um, that they come into contact with around diet and lifestyle because we collected surveys recently in a BMJ uh, prevention nutrition publication that's just come out and it showed that medical students and junior doctors don't feel confident in giving diet and lifestyle advice when they you know are in a position where a patient is kind of probing them for it and it's not due to a lack of time that they're not able to give it it's because they don't have the confidence in their skills to actually deliver it so it's really brilliant that you have this content contact with medical students from the onset to teach them about um you know the complex nature of the food environment and um you know how body weight regulation comes into that and yeah i think we need a lot more of that you know, and, and, and this is why I actually, people ask why I, okay, my day job is my day job, but people do ask why I do this broadcasting lark. I, I, there are a significant number of my um, colleagues who think what I do, the non-day job bit, the broadcasting, writing, and speaking, as a waste of time. Um, I, I, it's not a waste of time. To my mind, it's a duty. Uh, uh, it's not a waste of time. I think it's absolutely crucial that we are out there speaking not only um, not only from an outward facing to other clinicians, but mm -hmm. also to the public, to society at large. And we need to, there is a problem to fix and yelling at each other is not going to help. Uh, and we have to, to, to not yell at each other, have an adult discussion about the nuances. Nuance is just difficult to deal with. Okay, The media find it difficult to deal with because it's not, uh, uh, you can't put it into a soundbite because it's nuance. You, need to explain the, the, the pros and cons that it depends it depends and so this is is one of the my life's goal at the moment aside from doing my day job is to try and keep banging on banging on about the new one underlying uh, underlying the public health around body weight and around diet yeah i couldn't agree more it really isn't a black and white situation and it's not the same as any other public health issues in the past it's not the same as, like you said, smoking or wearing a seatbelt because food is our essential fuel. It's essential for metabolism and growth and it isn't something that we can't rely on. So it is indeed very complicated. Um, and there are a lot of shows and documentaries that come out to try and illustrate the issues. And so speaking of your broadcasting job, um, you were recently involved in a TV show that was shown on BBC called The Restaurant That Burns Off Calories, and I'll link this in the show notes uh, for our listeners, and it caused quite a huge amount of controversy and backlash within the eating disorder community, and so just to um, illustrate to our listeners what it was about, it essentially... Um, or maybe you can do, maybe you want to illustrate it rather than me as you're actually involved in it and you can explain your involvement with it afterwards. Okay, so the, okay, just to be clear, okay, okay uh, my involvement in it was to talk about the genetics of body weight. Okay, so I was approached to say, uh, would I talk about the genetics of body weight? Of course I would. It's the same reason why I'm talking, why I'm talking to you, why I'm talking to you today. Um, the program, let me set up the conceit. The, um, the conceit of the program, which turned out to be the major issue with the program, 
was about a restaurant in which people went in to order food, fish and chips, whatever it is that you were ordering, okay? And, um, but there was calor- caloric information in those food. But in the back room, there were a whole lot of Fitspo people with Lycra um, who were then going to work out and burn off every single calorie that was eaten within, within, within the restaurant. Okay, so this was the underlying, it was the BBC Horizon thing, and it was the underlying um, premise of the, of the show, the, the, the gimmick, okay? Um, and then in amongst that, they then went to speak to scientists such as myself about body weight regulation. They spoke to Professor Susan Jeb about the, uh, more about the environment, about advertising, and then they spoke to, for example, Professor Tim Spector about the gut microbiome, et cetera, et cetera. They even spoke to my colleague, Professor Faruqi, about, about, um, about genetics of, of leanness. Um, when I was approached, I was told that it was going to be a, a program linking, um, talking about exercise and calories, okay, and how that actually links to body weight, which is what we ended up, we ended up talking about. And that's critical to actually get out because I think there is an underappreciation for how much, for how easy it is to put calories in and how difficult it is to burn it off. It's not impossible to burn off. If you were Mo Farah or, or you know, Michael Phelps, you, you'd be able to burn off everything that, 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 that you eat. And that actually, if you want to control body weight, you have to reduce food intake primarily. Because we, we are evolved to eat calories quicker than we can burn calories. Okay, that's what, that is what has kept us alive. And so people, uh, I was approached about this. They told me they were talking to Sujab, Sidaf Maruki, et cetera, et cetera. I said, oh, they're speaking to real scientists. I think this is a nuance, the word capital N there, um, that we need to talk about. And I filmed my bit, and that pretty much was it. I didn't. I was only told that it was, I didn't know what else happened in the rest of the program. I wasn't told it was coming out to the morning the program came out, but this is typical. Um, but then the problem was, they did it in a, in a way that almost like people were being punished for eating. And in order to eat a hamburger or fish and chips, you needed to roll, run, cycle this amount. Okay. And it was the linking of the two together that in order to eat this, you had to, you had to burn that. Um, um, that ended up being the problem. I, I don't think the concept of talking about calories and food and, and how much it takes to actually burn something off, and the biology trying to understand that actually we eat a lot more efficiently than we burn. Uh, sorry, let me say that again. Um, that that the biology that we're set up is that we can eat a lot, eat calories a lot quicker than we can burn it, because that's what's kept us alive. I thought that was important to get out there. The problem was the conceit it was a bit trashy, and um, and that that was the first problem. The second issue, I think. Um, I, I know one of the presenters well, Zoe, Zoe Williams, Dr. Zoe Williams, who's a GP, and she's actually a co-presenter of mine on uh, BBC's Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, and she's an exercise. She used to be a gladiator, so I knew that she was going to be an exercise fanatic, um, but I think the problem was the other presenter, Fred, I, I, can't, I can't remember his last, his last name, um, was quite obnoxious to people on Twitter, okay? and I had been LinkedIn because uh, people had put out that this program was coming out. And, uh, and the eating disorder people had questioned the, the conceit of the film, and he turned out to be quite snarky and mm. um, and, 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 and obnoxious about it, uh, uh, really making the problem worse. So I uh, participated in a program with the best of intentions because I wanted to get out a nuance, um, 
but I think they probably got the tone wrong entirely um, into into trying to get that message across. They missed the nuance. That's the first thing. And second, um, in a perfect storm, they released it in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> when, when all of us were actually locked down and in reality actually find it very difficult to actually get out for more than our 30 minutes to one hour of government-mandated um, um, exercise. So, so there we go. That's my, that's my opinion on the, on, on, on the situation. I mean, I, I, I got asked to be involved. I knew what we were going to talk about, so I'm not, you know, I'm not excusing myself from, from that, but it is what it is. Sure. No, thank you for your comments. Uh, really interesting. So is it a case that um, calories in and calories out is the main way of looking at um, obesity or do you need to take into account more the nuance and make it slightly less reductionist when you're thinking about the actual nutrient quality of the food um, that you're eating? So not to just think about the calories, but to think about the nutrient quality. Yeah, it's, it's not only about the nutrient quality, um, um, but it's also the source of the the source of the nutrient where the, the cal where the calorie actually actually comes from. So, from a purely physics perspective, the, you can only gain weight, like I said, if you absorb more absorb more calories than you actually burn. There's no way around that. But inbuilt into that very simple calories in, calories out, is you're absolutely right. Where the calories come from? Now, I'll give you the, the, a very simple, uh, a very simple example. Okay, um, we have to think about caloric availability. Let's put it this way: we are unable to extract the calories from. We are unable to extract all of the calories stuck in a specific food. So, just as an example, if you had a hundred calories of sugar, just just sucrose, okay, table sugar, and you ate it, you'd probably extract pretty close to ninety-five to ninety-seven calories. Okay. Um, um, out, out of it, because it's sugar. Fat, if you ate 100 calories of fat, you'd probably get pretty close to 100 calories of fat, because that's a very energy dense. But if you had 100 calories of sweet corn, okay, corn on the cob, and then you kind of peaked in the, the loo the next day, it will be clear that you hadn't, you hadn't digested or absorbed anywhere close to 100 calories of sweet corn, okay? But yet, if you take sweet corn, desiccate it, uh, turn it to a corn meal and make it into a a corn tortilla. Suddenly, a far greater percentage of the calories are actually available. And so, I think blindly counting calories with no um, consideration for where the calories have come from makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, it's clearly going to make a difference. Say you on some diet that meant that you had to uh, um, have four hundred calories for lunch only, for example then it makes a big difference if you're having 400 calories worth of sugar or 400 calories worth of sweet corn or celery or lentils, okay? Uh, and those, those are foods with two very, very, very different caloric availabilities. I'm not being a sugar Nazi, just to be clear, but what I'm saying is that we have to understand where the food comes from um, and where the calories come from to understand fully about the calories we're absorbing. Absolutely, and that also ties into what Prof Tim Spector was saying about the gut microbiome and having a diverse range of vegetables and dried herbs and spices will help promote that fat busting um, gut bacteria to help with body weight regulation. So it is obviously quite multifaceted compared to calories in and calories out. Um, but yeah, lots of big picture things really. And so um, one more comment I'd like to get from you is about 
um, I know it came out a few months ago now, I don't remember exactly when, but there was that kind of idea of the government putting um, exercise, um, like information about exercise on the food, on food labelling. So you eat a chocolate bar, this is how much exercise you need to do to burn it off. I guess it's quite similar to the conceit of the show. So could you probably, yeah, you could probably give me a few thoughts on that. Once again, there's a new one. I, I think that human beings are, are rubbish, actually, at, at, at predicting the number of calories in a particular food. I mean, how many of us have been lining up for our morning, when we could, lining up for our morning cup of coffee at your favorite coffee place, and you look at the blueberry muffin only to realize, oh my God, it's 400 calories, I'm not going to eat that, okay? Um, and, and then we understand in our head, 400 calories sounds like a lot for, for, for a muffin. Um, I know some of the people who, who did the work about trying to understand what we need to do to nudge um, consumers, to nudge the public into trying to make healthier decisions. Okay, and this is, they would put it as the equivalent of looking at a pack of cigarettes um, um, and having saying, this causes cancer. Once again, I'm not trying to equate food to cigarettes for the reasons we've actually, we've actually talked about. I think there are ways of getting information across about how calorie dense a, a, a specific set of foods uh, or a specific food items would be, meaning that you would need to exercise this much um, in order to in order to burn this off. Do you really need this item of, of, of food? So do I think it should be on food packaging? I don't know yet. I am not sure. And I think it's going to be a situation where it will work for some people very, very well, but it will backfire spectacularly others such as people with eating disorders or with a propensity a little bit OCD in, in, in exercising um, that will then take it the wrong way and that's always the challenge so I think it probably would be effective for quite a large chunk of society to understand and oh my goodness me this muffin is going to take me half an hour on a treadmill for example but how do we then protect the people who will take that entirely the wrong way and, 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 and overreact to it. And so I think whatever we put out there as a we, we as a community, we do need to understand the science behind it to see how many people, are, how people are likely to react to it. And if we were to feel that that was the best way of getting the information across, how would we mitigate against the really negative effects that could, uh, that could actually appear? Sorry, that was a little bit of a fluffy answer. No, but that's, because, but that's because it was a nuanced answer. Exactly, and it's a very nuanced topic, and it is so true. If you're putting out something like that, there needs mm. to be safety netting to help those that are vulnerable in society that won't mm. respond well. And I guess it's very complicated, and it's the same kind of tension we were discussing with population level versus individual basis um, weight management interventions. It's very, it's very complicated to have to make something that applies to all and um you know that fits well for all demographics it's just not really possible i think we probably have to subtype um categorize different demographics and have you know the interventions um angled at them but that's just not how it works we all use the same supermarkets and the same right. environment so it, it, it is indeed very challenging um the personalized approach and hopefully we'll see work that does try and mitigate um the negative consequences of these interventions 
And so um, it's only fitting we've spoken a fortune about calories. I know that you're bringing out your second book mm-hmm. um, in uh, May 2021, is it? We hope. I'm in the middle of writing it at the moment. This is... <laughs> This is a, yeah, it's going to be called, I don't know what the tagline is, but I know what the, the main title is going to be. It's going to be called Why Calories Don't Count. And um, actually, it's it, it, that sweet corn example with the sugar that, that I gave you. This is pretty much, it's a, it's a, it's a meditation on the calorie. Um, so, so in other words, how we actually extract it from food, um, what we actually uh, do with the calories, and then to then talk about how the Go back to diets, okay? How do the diets that work actually leverage, the diets that do work, leverage the biology underlying the calorie? Um, And this is what I want to talk about. It's a meditation on the calorie and really thinking about all facets of it, all the nuances to do with calories. So why calories don't count? Wow. I can't wait to read that one. And um, I'm sure our branches will be really interested to read it as well and have you speak again. I'd love to. <laughs> when in person, hopefully, next time. Uh, that's what I hope, Giles. That's what I hope. Um, but, we, you know, we can continue with virtual for the time being. Yes. So, earlier on, you mentioned um, how you researched the neural control of body weights. And I just wanted to know if this has had an impact on the way that you personally eat and your thoughts around nutrition, food, and cooking. Um. No, actually, what I, it, it, it didn't. I love my it's the, the, my day job had less to do with with uh, with how I actually behave and eat. Even though we, even though I know about the food, sadly, um, actually, what has had an impact have have been um some of my broadcasting experiences because um uh, the BBC like to get me to self experiment <laughs> to experiment various things on myself diets in particular because that's what they like me to do. And I did a I did a I've done a month being a vegan um i've done a month of intermittent fasting and i can say i loved it vegan i hated intermittent fasting just fyi um and 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 actually what happened was i went on a vegan diet for a month plant-based actually lost a bunch of weight um and as i said i'm a you know middle-aged guy 47 years old in a few days and um and i thought oh i do need to look after my health a bit and so now after that little experiment and i'm having lost the weight i ended up being i'm now flexitarian Sounds mm-hmm. like a cop out, I know. <laughs> uh, but actually, I've, but actually, I've cut my meat intake by fifty percent easily, um, and uh, and I I think I'm feeling better for it. I've lost a lot of weight. Uh, I've kept the weight off, and um, and so I'm happy to do that. I don't think it's an extreme way of doing it because I am not vegan. I eat meat. I eat. Uh, um, I have 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 a steak. Uh, I just eat less of it, and I think that has got to be the way. Um, to do it i'm not countenancing that this is going to be suitable for everybody obviously but for me that's a very useful way of, of of controlling my diet that's very interesting that you get to use yourself as your own guinea pig mm-hmm. <laughs> what other crazy things have you had to do um with your broadcasting experience oh the worst so, so the intermittent fasting as i said i did that i really really didn't like it um i did another one actually which was which was interesting um uh, they wanted to know the effect of stress on your blood glucose levels. There, there, there is a thought that um, to people who are susceptible, being chronically stressed all the time could tilt some people to type 2 diabetes. Is, is there any truth about this? Okay. So I ended up wandering around for a week uh, beforehand with one of these 
freestyle Libra, um, you know, that type 1 diabetic. Yeah, thing. I've been in clinic before and seen it prescribed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, as a scientist, it's like a nerd's dream. So for people who don't know what it is, it's a little patch with a little tiny hair thickness needle, okay? It sounds scarier than it is. You can't actually feel the needle going in. You put this patch on, and this little needle constantly samples not your blood, but the, in, the interstitial fluid. Okay, and then they have done the cabral, the, the, the clever uh, uh, Johnnies have figured out the way of actually predicting how much glucose um, um, is actually in your blood based on your interstitial fluid. And you have a little mobile size phone thing in which you kind of beep and actually read the, the, the results. But it gives you real time glucose. And so I then spend the entire time eating, oh, uh, what happens when I eat potatoes or rice or, or celery, you know, to my glucose levels. And so that was very, very. That was very, very interesting. But this was all baseline data. And then what then happened was I appeared at, uh, at, at the university where, where this experiment was, was actually being done, and I was going to be stressed in inverted commas. Now, always, I didn't do it, always read the waiver. There was a waiver, this being the problem already. And as I was signing the waiver, it said that I would experience discomfort and even pain. I was going, okay, what, what the hell am I signing up for? So I then walk into this room. And, um, and there I saw a white-coated, po-faced uh, scientist um, and a water bath at 2 degrees Celsius. I said, uh-oh, I can't see where this is going. I know, I know. And so, so I've had a week worth of data in which, obviously, now we know what my blood glucose level excursions are during a meal and how long they would take to go back down to baseline levels after a meal. And I'm not diabetic, so all of this was perfectly normal, okay? So we took, uh, I had lunch and then waited. Um, so my blood glucose levels went back down to, to, to baseline after 90 minutes as a normal non-diabetic would. Um, but what they did was at 30 minutes after lunch, exactly what I ate the day before, they brought me into this experiment. And then the guy said, stick your hand in the water. The cameras, remember, cameras are looking at the point. Oh my God. I don't know if you've stuck your hand in two degrees before. It is like someone has hacked it off with a machete. And so you're there going, what the... WTF, um, and then 90 seconds I held it in, and I pulled it up thinking my hand is about to fall off. Then suddenly the guy shouts at me, subtract 37 from 1,492 sequentially. What? Oh my and, gosh, and, uh, this is hell. Monster, I know, and then, and then he says, put your hand back in, out, in, out. 15 minutes they did this. Anyway, it was very unpleasant. But what was really interesting <laughs> was that the, from the moment, so this remember it was post-mail, Okay, I had just had my lunch 30 minutes ago. The moment I stuck my hand in, into the cold water, my blood glucose levels came to a screeching halt. It stopped going down. And it took six times longer for my blood sugar levels to drop back down the baseline the moment I was stressed. Fascinating. And then we saw the biology in action. The moment you're stressed, your body, adrenaline, etc., etc., puts out cortisol, puts out your glucose, it keeps the glucose in the blood, just in case you need to react to a tiger, tiger, run, run. Um, um, it keeps the glucose glucose out. And so it, it, it just took a lot longer for my glucose levels to go down. If I had been diabetic, my glucose levels would have gone back up. Um, um, you, you know, this was the really interesting thing. So anyway, that, that's an, so that was a very long-winded explanation. No. One of the more interesting experiments. Very interesting. And it really defines, you know, authentic brain freeze. I can't say I ever want to try that. No, no, it's painful. <laughs> Wow, that's that is super interesting to hear. And we are taught at medical school that 
um, if you're diabetic, you know, your insulin requirements change in all different environmental situations, whether your body, if your body becomes ill, then your body's stressed. So of course, you're going to have variation there. And so um, it sounds like quite, yeah, a fascinating experiment. Um, so could you tell us any of the research that you're currently working on? I know you're quite busy writing a book um, and that your practice has probably also been affected by COVID, but are you working on any research that you can tell yeah. us about? So, so, so at the moment, so what, one of the, the things I'm, I'm really working, really interested in at the moment is our understanding of the, of the brain control of food intake have largely come from work in mice because how else are we going to get how else are we going to get into the brain of a human being <laughs> Le legally we're not going to be able to we're not going to be able to to, to actually do this uh, in, in in the brain of a human being and so what we're actually doing at the moment is we are in a situation so all of the circuitry we know about are from animals are from animal models but we know next to nothing about the human brain when it comes to food intake control but now, working with uh, the MRC Brain Network, which, which has brain banks, donor human brain banks throughout throughout the country, including um, um, the one in Bristol, um, I now have access to human hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus is the food control element of, of, of the brain, in which we are now doing single cell sequencing from brain uh, from brain donors, and we're funded. We're funded to do I think up, somewhere up to a million up to a million of these different um, um, human uh, hypothalamic cells to find out what is there, and so that is what uh, that is what I'm doing at the moment. I'm, I'm trying to understand uh, to do a census of the human hypothalamus to see what neurons and what other cells are there, and then to then map it back into the human hypothalamus as well to see how it compares to the feeding circuitry in the mouse. That's incredible. And what's the timeline with this? Uh, I am I the, the funding. Two separate grants started roughly uh one was in july 2019 one was in october 2019 everything has come to a screeching halt at the moment sure, sure. um we have worked out all of the protocols okay we have got all the brain samples that we want in-house and so the moment lockdown ends um we press go and i think the sequencing will be done relatively quickly because because that is just sequencing and we just kind of push through a uh, production it's going to be in the analysis that's going to take that is going to take the time but this is a three-year grant um, two three-year grants actually and so we would hope to get something significant out I, oh come on i really hope in the next year and a half or two years <laughs> wow really setting your standards high you balance a lot <laughs> It sounds incredible, though, and yeah, I can't wait to read up on that. Um, and so, sorry, I just lost my place there. Okay. Um, so speaking about the great halt that's come with your work, um, that is the COVID-19 crisis, could you just tell our listeners how it's impacting your work at the moment and whether you think COVID-19 will have an impact in the future on how individuals actually relate to food? Ooh, I'll answer the first bit first. That's easier to that's easier to answer. Um, there are elements of the work which are not affected because we needed to write up a couple of papers and there needed to be some extensive um, uh, experiment uh, analysis of data. 
okay? Because there's genetic data, there's gene expression data, and all of this is done by computer, and so it doesn't matter where, where, where the team and I are actually sitting. Um, so that stuff is going on, and we can then write up the data we actually analyze. Uh, the problem, obviously, is the wet work. We can't carry on any, with any of our or any of our sequencing that we, any new sequencing that we actually want to do, and we'll actually have to wait to come out of lockdown in order to, in order to do that. And I'm not entirely sure, from a purely practical point of view, if the funding bodies are going to extend, because we're likely to be in lockdown for, we're now, at, I don't know when this will come out, but at, at moment of interview, we are in week six of lockdown. And um, I don't know how long it's going to last for. We, we're anticipating 12 weeks. But are the funding bodies going to extend my funding, not my salary, I paid by university, but my postdoc and, and, and et cetera, et cetera, by three months at the end? I don't know. And so we are probably going to be on the clock. I'm going to assume that they're not and that we, in effect, have just had three months taken away from us. Goodness me. We just have to. Mm. Yeah. So, so that is probably my, my view on that. So it's quite COVID. a challenge for you at the moment, though, for all but academics, for really. Not only for me, all, yeah. not wanting to, yeah, yeah. Definitely, and, uh, definitely. Yeah. And so then on to the second part of the question about how you think that people's attitudes towards food may have perhaps changed due to the COVID-19 crisis. Do you know, that is going to be, so first of all, all of us are cooking at home because that's the only way we're going to be eating at the moment. Um... I would hope, okay, um, and I understand that there is a huge uptick in the purchase uh, uh, of, of highly processed foods because you can just buy at home, it's easy to cook, and some people don't know how to cook. But I would like to hope, I just, I'm going to take myself as an example, okay? So normally, under normal circumstances, we go to work Monday to Friday, whatever it is, I don't tend to cook a lot of anything, I don't tend, I'm the cook in the house. I don't tend to cook anything overly sophisticated between Monday and Friday because why? You, you come home from work, you're tired, you do something quick. Whereas I save my longer, stewy, roasty cooking for the weekend, okay? Sure. Whereas now, every day, you know, when I'm done talking to you, I might wander downstairs and turn on the oven or whatever, whatever the situation is. And it's been very, very... For me, it's been very relaxing, that element of it. For me, it's been very, very good. And I like to think that's going to be true for some people. I, I would hope that for some people, it would actually improve their relationship with food because some people probably have not cooked for the past year or something and suddenly they're, they're forced to do so. I mean, for others, it won't, and that's always going to be the case. But I would like to think that it would improve our relationship with food and the people who produce the food. That's what I'd like to think anyway. Yeah, optimism is best. There are obviously issues with people's finances and the rise of food bank intake increasing with people not being able to, yeah. Absolutely. So, so I, I speak from a completely... Personal, no, of course, yeah. First world, privileged, paid scenario, and, sure. I, and I fully acknowledge that. I know, it's, it's so varied, and once again, it comes down to different demographics, but it is interesting, and I do agree with you, those that are able, perhaps... Um, and are equipped to do so can cook from scratch much more often, um, relying less on you know takeaways and things like that. And we're not really eating in restaurants and cafes anymore. But then I guess you know the whole other end of the spectrum is people who 
Um, I know this one uh, clinician I spoke to last week who's volunteering at food banks at the moment and he um, he lives in Kent and he went round to a family to deliver a food package and the kids hadn't eaten all day and it was 4pm and so it is a huge challenge especially with kids and schooling um, and those who rely on school lunches but you know very yeah it's a spectrum but it, so, so it is interesting. Just, just, just very, very quickly, I actually work with a charity called Sugarwise. Oh, cool! And I won't, I won't. And, and it's one of the things in which we are trying to. Um, one of the charity uh, goals is to try and actually have some kind of limits on the sugar in food for primary school age kids. There are no limits at the moment; zero limits well. on what sugar you can put put in food. I don't know if you know this. Anyway, mm-hmm. that being by the by, but we're actually in the middle of a fundraising drive at the moment um, for. Uh, to actually try and get food to kids who normally relied on school lunches for their food, um, um, you know, in order to try and and actually get get food to them, kids that actually rely on free, free school lunches and could be doing food banks at home. So we're doing our charities trying to do exactly that. Small. We're not a gigantic charity. We're working largely within London at the moment, but that is one of our goals of of, of the charity during this lockdown period. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And where can our listeners read more about the charity? What the social media handles? So if you actually Google Sugarwise, Sugar, S-U-G-A-R-W-I-S-E, you'll be able to find our webpage as well as our current, um, as well as our current fundraising um, uh, link. Wonderful. Thank you. So uh, just one more question before we wrap up to a fun question to finish off. I'm going to take you back to um, the documentary you did in 27, Clean Eating the Dirty Truth, the thing that we spoke about right at the start, because that's how I initially came across you as well as um, seeing you speak. Um, Could you tell our listeners a little bit about the things you discovered uh, when you were investigating um, the clean eating sensation that blew up on social media when you were filming this show? I know that you led it with um, the Instagram entrepreneur Ella Mills, deliciously Ella. who is deliciously Ella, yes. Um, so could you tell us a bit of some of the brands that you looked into and some of some of the crazes that you came across globally? I remember being so shocked at the um, Californian ranch one where, yes. yeah. So, so we looked we looked into three different um, three different uh, things. We looked in we looked into plant based, okay. Um, and plant-based is different from vegan. It's a more extreme version of vegan. It doesn't eat any highly processed foods, and and you eat whole foods uh, that are um, that are minimally processed. That in itself is not a problem because I went plant-based for a month and I actually enjoyed it. Um, but the the more evangelical fringe of the plant-based community um, believe that there is no safe dose of animal-based protein. I'm not talking steaks. I'm talking a bit of egg whites, a bit of milk, a bit, uh, you, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They don't believe that there is a safe dose of, of animal-based protein. There clearly is. Do we eat too much meat? We do. Is there a safe dose of animal-based protein? There is. So that was, that was A. We, we looked into the plant-based, and that's where I spoke to Deliciously Ella. And then I went to America to speak to one of the old white men, and they were old, old white men in America, okay, who was the father of the plant-based um, 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 drive. Then I looked into gluten-free for the sake of being gluten-free, rather than for celiacs. And I spoke to a guy named um, uh, Bill Davis, okay, who wrote Wheat Belly, 
and um, and he was the father of the gluten-free craze, and we looked and picked that part. And then finally, and this 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 Californian ranch is we looked at the alkaline diet. Now this is the craziest of the diets. So uh, for those of you who don't know what an alkaline diet is um, or what it purports to be, uh, our blood pH is seven point four. Okay, so slightly alkaline. Seven is neutral. Higher than seven is alkaline. Um, but this guy, Robert Young, in inverted commas, doctor, um, said that, oh, because we are alkaline creatures, we are, to an extent, um, that, uh, that we actually uh, have to eat alkaline foods in order to uh, maintain our blood alkaline levels. Complete BS, because it completely ignores the presence of our pH 1.5 stomach. <laughs> so in other words, when you're actually when you're actually eating eating the food, everything is going to be acidified in the stomach before it actually comes out, before it actually goes into in, into your guts. This is by the by, it's a weird old weird old thing. But here's the problem: he was crazy enough to think that therefore anything acidic in inverted commas was is bad for you, okay? And that all disease was acidic, and so the way to cure the disease was to cure the acidity. And he decided, in his wisdom, to try and cure cancer. And he would therefore take terminally ill cancer patients and infuse them, literally, okay, with sodium bicarbonate, the stuff, arm and hammer, the stuff you use to, to take smells out of your out of your fridge, mm-hmm. um, and try and cure the cancer. Look, it was the most surreal thing. He ended up, did he directly cause their death? I would like to think so. He probably accelerated the death of a lot of people killing something, I mean, it's just ridiculous. He treated, in inverted commas, 80, 90 people with terminal ill cancer. That's one of the crazy things which I interviewed and, and, and looked at during the show. I remember seeing the woman, um, the soldier, the woman from the army and her family speaking about how she'd yeah. saved all her money to go to this ranch in California. 70, that's that's also the exploitative aspect that is not okay. Not only is the premise not okay, but the exploitative aspect of these vulnerable people paying all that money. It's, and it is, it is. Yeah. And it's one of these things where you, you don't blame the people. Because if you no, work, you know, of course you, not. You don't blame the people suffering from cancer trying no. to actually get themselves, uh, try, trying to help themselves. You blame the people exploiting it. It was ludicrous. It was just the most surreal thing I have ever, ever done. Completely. And I guess that is what's really complicated in this arena that we're in at the moment. And I see it on Instagram all the time is the whole kind of reductionist aspect of food as medicine. And um, I'm sure you've seen people on Twitter and Instagram um, saying that food interventions are the only way forward. And like we've discussed today, it really is all about nuance. It's about marrying conventional medicine as well as um, looking at important nutrition and lifestyle interventions alongside it and not as an alternative but you know to be integrated into the management approach rather than say no to pills no to surgeries forever um, and it's exactly what you've been saying nuance really important and so now just to finish up on a really fun question um, I want to know from you, Giles, I think of you as a bit of a foodie, so I want to know what your last supper meal would be, your ideal starter, your main, and your dessert. Starter, main, and dessert? Yes, of your ideal last supper. I'm going to go with the, okay, 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 okay. I think my, I'm always a sucker. When I actually look at a menu, what, what happens when I, when I actually go... 
I need, if I see pork belly, I'm going to give two, I'm sorry. Um, if I see pork belly, I will always have the pork belly. Isn't that terrible? It's one of these, you know, small little bit of pork belly as a, as, as, as a starter. I think either that or a chicken liver parfait. I love that. <laughs> my, that that's going to be either one of those for my starter. The main, so this is not an actual menu that you actually have. No, no, no. You've got one day to live. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. The main has got to be one of my favorite meals that I know how to cook, actually. It's called Hainanese chicken rice. Hainan is 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 an island in China. My grandfather, one of my grandfathers is from there. And this is a peasant food dish of poached chicken, which you then take the poaching leg of the chicken and you make everything with it. You make the rice, you make the soup, you make the the, the, the sauce. and it's one of my fa- it's one of my family's favorite dish, and I make that all the time. And I think that would have to be my that would have to be my main my main meal. And do you know desserts? Um, um, I can think nothing better than a sticky toffee pudding. <laughs> it's one of my favorites too, sticky toffee. <laughs> wow, that sounds like a fantastic last supper. And I just wanted to say a huge thank you for coming on to the podcast today. I certainly learned a fortune and feel like we covered so many different areas from your academic work to your broadcasting work and trends in um, society. So thank you so much, Charles. And we hope to have you speak at one of our conferences or events again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Follow Giles Yo on Twitter and Instagram. The same social media handle, Giles Yo. Nutritank are proud to have featured on many of the UK's leading networks and publications, Jamie Oliver's website and his Channel 4 show, Jamie and Jimmy's Friday Night Feast, BBC News, BBC Radio 4 on Sheila Dillon's The Food Programme, Women's Health, BBC Bristol and the Royal Society of Medicine. Nutritank is an innovative information hub of food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine promoting the need for greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within healthcare training and empowering members of the public to improve their health. Join the movement to bring greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education nationwide. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you want to find more about Nutritank, visit the website, Nutritank.com. Also, find us on Twitter, Nutritank underscore info, and Instagram, Nutritank underscore official. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It will really help with our mission at Nutritank to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Bye for now.